When people can only see what's right in front of them, we would call that being nearsighted. Nearsighted. Now, by law, if you drive with nearsightedness, you need to have corrective lenses on. Otherwise, it could be dangerous. Dangerous because you can't see where you're headed. Similarly, thinking only about the here and now will have dangerous implications for your future. If we're only thinking about what's happening at this moment, it could lead you into unforeseen consequences. If you spend the entire night partying, drinking, doing stupid stuff, it's going to hurt you the next morning. Or it could hurt you that same evening, depending if you have drunk drivers or all kinds of crazy stuff can happen when you have alcohol involved. Being physical in the heat of the moment can lead to pregnancy, all kinds of different things that you did not intend originally. And that's why it's important to think about the future, not just get caught up in the emotion, in the heat of the moment, because the future matters, right? We want to think about what's going to be happening, not just in the here and now, but what's going to happen in eternity. Something that I like to repeat often is, whenever people say, I want to live for the moment, I like to say this. Living for the moment really just means that you don't believe that there's any particular moment worth living for. Living for the moment means that you don't believe that there's any one particular moment worth living for. Whereas an athlete trains himself because he knows that he wants to win a race. And so he'll actually do some crazy stuff. He will actually not eat donuts and fill his stomach with sugar. He'll actually exercise. Why? Because he knows there's a race that he wants to win. And that's what we're doing. We're spiritual athletes. We're saying there's something in the future that will be far better than what this current moment is offering me. And therefore, I'm going to believe by faith that that's going to be worth it. And so I'm going to be waiting for that moment. In summary, you can, you can take this entire message that we're going to talk about tonight and summarize it in this one sentence. We compromise in the present when we don't have our focus on Jesus. I'll say it again. We compromise in the present when we don't have our focus on Jesus. And this is what happens in relationships, right? Because you're so caught up in the emotion, in your feelings, you're infatuated. You see that person and they're so beautiful, lovely, amazing. And because you're just, you're like, I, it just has to be right. I have to pursue this person. You might actually find yourself in unforeseen consequences that you never intended all because you didn't use one of the fruits of the Spirit, which is self-control. And we've talked about this in previous messages, right? So self-control is, even though I want to do something, I don't because I know that's not pleasing to the Lord. I, not, I know it's not going to be good. So I'm actually going to suppress those desires, not repress it. Repression is just pretend it didn't happen. Just boil it down. Suppressing is, I'm going to wait because there's something far greater, far better, and I want to exercise wisdom. So, we compromise in the present when we don't have our focus on Jesus. The book of Hosea in the, in, in the Old Testament is all about this prophet named Hosea who was commanded by God to go and marry a prostitute. Make that prostitute his bride. And then she cheated on him multiple, multiple times. And God was saying to Hosea, whose heart is torn, and he's just, I don't understand. Why do you keep telling me to pursue her? And she's going around to these different areas and sleeping with different guys. And at one point, to even purchase his own wife back out of slavery. Why are you telling me to do this, God? And God said in, in the book of Hosea to the prophet Hosea, it's, it's to show how much I love the people of Israel. This hurt that you feel as your wife is constantly cheating on you, that's how I feel when my people, Israel, constantly forsakes me. But to show you my steadfast love for you, I want you to go and buy her back. That's what Hosea was commanded to do. And so in the book of Hosea, chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. And also in, in verse 6 of the same chapter, it says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The knowledge of God. How many of us compromise in the present because we don't have our focus on Jesus, his love, 
his goodness, his grace. There's a letter that was written to the, to the angel of the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And the church of Ephesus had works. It did all these amazing things. They were passionate. But this is what it says in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 2. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. See, this is what it's all about. We as Christians, as believers, what we're saying is Jesus is our priority. We want to pursue him and his kingdom. We love God. But we can find ourselves actually leaving our first love because we're only focused on the here and now, the present. But we're forgetting that Jesus loves us more than anyone else. He loves us the most. And so, what we need to do today is to pre prevent ourselves from nearsightedness. We need to look at relationships through the lens of God's word in order to keep ourselves focused on what's most important. Just as you would have uh, corrective lenses over your eyes to prevent the nearsightedness from harming you and destroying you if you're driving, we need to put on the lens of the word of God in order to see clearly and see beyond the here and now and not be distracted from what's most important. You see, whenever we're saying no to temptation, it's not just say no, don't do it, it's bad, it's wrong. A lot of people get that confused about Christianity. They think like, why can't I just have fun? Why can't I just flirt or mess around or whatever? Anytime we're saying no to something, it's because there's a far greater yes that we want to embrace. We're saying yes to God, yes to his promises, yes to the future that he has. God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are greater than your thoughts. As high as heaven is from the earth, that's how much better my ways are than your ways. So think about this. We know that we're imperfect, right? No one would say that we're perfect. And we also know that God is perfect. And God created love, sex, all those things, right? Now, how can an imperfect use of a perfect and good thing be better than the perfect use of a good thing? How can our imperfected mind be able to conceive a better use than what God himself, who is perfect, prescribes for us? It doesn't make any sense. But that's the point. We don't think with our minds. We don't think, we, we think with our hearts when we're there in the moment. But the heart is deceitfully wicked, the Bible says. Who can know it? So, tonight what we're going to go over is three things God's word says to focus on in order to avoid compromise in relationships. Three things uh, that God's word says to focus on in order to avoid compromise in relationships. The first thing is God's timing. Focus on God's timing so you don't compromise in relationships. And that we see in Song of Songs, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. It says this, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Has anyone ever been ripped off before? Ever been ripped off? You've been cheated? Uh, at a climbing competition years ago, I was, I was doing pretty bad, actually. But I won a raffle, and the raffle was for a surfboard. I've never surfed before in my life, right? And so it was kind of like insult to injury because I won a prize. I was like, imagine I win the surfboard of all people who's never probably going to use it. Actually, still to this day, this is like four years ago, I still haven't used a surfboard. It's in my garage right now. And I won a custom-made surfboard. It's like pretty nice. I have no idea how much surfboards are worth. So people were like on the spot saying, dude, I will give you $100. And I was like, whoa, someone's going to give me $100 cash. Just like, I have the cash in my car. I'll go get it. I'll give you $100. Little did I know that this surfboard's worth about $800. I had no idea. I've never surfed before in my life. How about buying a car? That's the, like one of the freakiest things is when you are old enough to buy a car, you always feel like you're being ripped off. Because the person's telling you, like, oh, it's, this is great. You know, I'm not allowed to do this. That's what they always say, too. I'm really not supposed to do this, but I'll cut you a break. They're just lying to you. It's so messed up. Be aware. Find, a, like, a very big, muscular man that you can bring with you to buy a car. Bring your dad, too, if you're a lady, by the way. Not just a muscular man. Maybe your dad is a muscular man. Either way, bring somebody that can intimidate the car salesman so you don't get ripped off. Now, why is it that we get ripped off? It happens because we didn't know the value of what we have, right? When you're ripped off, 
It's because you don't know the value of what you have. And maybe because you weren't patient enough to find out. See, what I needed to do, and I did, is actually find out, like, how much is my surfboard worth before I just sell it? But people aren't doing that with their lives right now. They're not doing that with their relationships. They're just, ah, you know, it feels right, so I might as well do it. And they're selling themselves cheap, not realizing that God has something far greater for them. And people think, why can't I be physical before marriage? Why can't I do this or do that? Not thinking about maybe God has something greater that actually takes into account your value, your value as a human being. Now, everybody knows in the lunchroom, if somebody comes up to you and says, do you want some Oreos? And like they hand it to you, you're, everybody, every smart person knows like they're going to say back, okay, what's wrong with it? Right? We're not just offering these things for free. I'm like, why are you offering this to me? Why are we then not quick to be skeptical when people are flirting with us, they're messaging us on Instagram or whatever? Why are we not skeptical with those people that are offering us something that might be too good to be true? So the book of Song of Solomon is all about a marriage, a wedding night. And here it says, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. David Guzik, who's the pastor, puts it this way. Don't start the process of loving exchange until the opportunity and appropriate occasion is present. Don't start something unless we can complete it. This is what we're saying. We're saying, don't open Pandora's box. Don't unleash passion, desire, all these different things until you're ready to make that commitment and you know that this person is worth committing to. Otherwise, you're giving parts of yourself to each person that you're physical with. You're giving yourself to this person and to that person and they're asking more and more from you and you're going to feel the weight of that. You're going to feel the weight of guilt and you're going to feel manipulated. You're going to feel like they're taking something sensitive from you. And what the Bible's saying is, imagine you took all of that and you gave it to one person you could trust who says, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, and in sickness and in health, I'm committed to you, no matter what. That's God's design. Now, not every marriage is perfect, for sure. Not every marriage winds up being that way. But here's the point. As believers, as Christians, this is what we're to be aiming for. And God, God gives us the power through his Holy Spirit to make that kind of life possible. Now compare that with the world where they have no parameters. They're not even sure why they commit. Why should you get married if you can just sleep with them beforehand? If you can just live with them, why would you get married? Why would you want to commit yourself to this person? Because feelings are here today and tomorrow they might not be there. Maybe this person likes you today, but can you really trust them? I don't know. And so this is the way that the world works. They're not really even sure why they get married other than tradition. They don't have anything holding them accountable. They think, all I'm seeking is my own personal happiness. And because of that, they will sell themselves cheap, not really realizing the value that God has instilled in them. This is the deception of Satan, by the way. Satan's deception is always, why wait? Why wait? Why, if you can just have it now, then there's no reason to wait. This is what he told Jesus. He said, hey, listen, I know you're like worried about going to the cross and stuff, but if you just bow down to me now, you don't have to go to the cross. I will give you the world. The world's my possession. I'll give you all of, all of it. Everything that you desire without having to go to the cross. This is what Satan's tactic was with Jesus, and its tactic, his tactic is the same with us. You know the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Where Jacob and Esau were twin brothers, and Esau was born first, so he had the right of the inheritance from his father. He would be able to inherit all of his possessions, his namesake, all that stuff. And then Esau is out hunting one day, and he's really, really hungry. He's tired. He's exhausted. And Jacob has this stew prepared for him, the trickster, right? That's what his name means. Esau sees it and is like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to die of starvation. Give me that stew. And Jacob says, I'll give it to you if you sell me all of your rights to all of your possessions that our father's going to give us. If you give me your birthright, I will give you the stew. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But here's why Esau did it. He gave in to the moment because he was thinking, what good is my birthright if I'm going to die of starvation? Sure, take my birthright. And he gave him the rights to that possession, but not realizing those rights were linked to God's plan of redemption for the whole world. 
Esau did not see its worth compared to his temporary hunger. And that's what we do in the moment, is we stop believing God's promises. When we give in to temptation, isn't it true? In a moment of lust, in a moment of deception, you're thinking, well, is God really going to fulfill his promise? Is this actually going to work out? Does he actually have somebody for me in the future? I don't know. I might as well just give in. I think everybody hates the concept of selling out. When you have your favorite band and they, they, they're, they're telling you, we're releasing a brand new album. And you're like really excited, right? Like, oh man, I can't wait to hear the album. And then you like, the album comes out, you listen to it. And you're like, what in the world? This is like pop. This is completely different than anything I've heard from them before. And you get angry with them because you know they've sold out. They gave in something that was valuable. The one thing we admired about them, they sold that for that which was selfish and of less value, namely money. The reason why people sell out, they stop being original, they stop making their own music the way that they want to is because the record label tells them, listen, you got to play what's popular because supply and demand, and we need it to go on 99.1, nothing against them. So we need you to play music the way that we want it, and you're going to make a lot of money. That wasn't a diss against 99.1. I listened to it all the time when I was like in third grade. So, I'm sorry. If anyone's listening from 99.1, just, uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'll edit this out. That's what we'll do. So, what are the ways that we could be sellouts? In other words, trading what is infinitely more valuable for that which is fleeting. Maybe. Like Esau, you gave into temptation because you didn't see the value in God's promises. Maybe you're giving into the lies of pornography, the lies of your lust, because you don't see the value in waiting for what God has. But this is where Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, God makes everything beautiful in its time. The seasons, summer, winter, fall, spring, everything happens for a reason, and it's season, and God's the one who plans it out. We have to be looking with eyes of faith beyond the near to see the far. What is it that God has planned? I don't know, but I'm going to trust that his ways are greater than my ways. I'm going to put my trust in his promises. Right now, I'm really into smoothie bowls. It's like my thing right now. And what I realized, and all of you realize this, like, you know, when you're kids because you actually made stuff yourself— I don't know. I just kind of just eat stuff. I didn't really eat fruit or vegetables or anything. But I realized in making smoothie bowls that if you have green bananas and you put them in your smoothie, it's not going to taste good. You need to wait till the fruit is ripe in order for it to be sweet, right? There are some things worth waiting for. And fruit, it's the same thing. Now you can just take the fruit and be like, I don't even care if it's green. I'm just going to throw it in and do it. But it's not going to be good. In the same way, God wants your marriage to be sweet. No pun intended. Which means, that was definitely intended, I'm sorry. Which means that you should be waiting for his timing. So that's the first point. Second point is this. Giving friendships. Remember, there are three things God's word says to focus on in order to avoid compromising relationships. The first thing is God's timing, that there's value in waiting. The second thing is giving friendships. Now turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read one verse. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Okay, I'm reading a different version just so you know. But it says this. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. So it's not just saying, run away from lust. Oh, it's bad. It's all evil. Like anytime you're out in the supermarket and you're passing by a store with people with scantily clad clothes, just run away. Just like see people just running in the mall for no reason. That's not what it's talking about, okay? It's saying you're running away from lust, but there's something you run to. And that's pursuing righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. 
enjoying the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. In other words, be pursuing friendships where it's all about you giving. Okay, so here's a, a great distinction between love and lust. Maybe you've heard it before. Worth saying again. Love looks to give. Lust looks to get. Love looks to give, and lust looks to get. You're looking to give to others because you love them, and you're thinking about the other person. You're being selfless. You're not even thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the other person. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not seek its own. That's what the Bible says, okay? This is what love is. Whereas lust is all thinking about how far can I go with this person? How much can I receive from this person? Does this person even care about me? They're not texting me. They're just, you're always thinking about yourself when it comes to lust. But listen, the way that we can escape lust is when we realize the motivation behind giving. Because God is the ultimate giver and has given everything to us already. That Jesus gave his life for us. Should we not lay down our lives for each other? Should we not give unto others because God has given us everything we have, the breath in our lungs, our families, our friends, our resources? He's given you a roof over your head. Should we not be grateful and therefore give unto others? Treat others as you would want to be treated. This is what King David failed to realize when he sinned with Bathsheba. He was up on the top of his palace at the time when kings go out into battle and so he was isolated, he was alone, he was supposed to be fighting, but he was back relaxing. And there Bathsheba was bathing on a rooftop, and then he looked, he lusted, and then he took action. And then he slept with Bathsheba. From there, you have a prophet, Nathan, who comes over to convict David and uses a story. Talks about a, a guy who, who took sheep from this one person who had one little ewe lamb. And then he says, you are that man, David. And this is what he says. Pay attention. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. When David's just like, oh, we should totally get rid of that person. He should, that, that person should be killed. He says, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if, it, if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. See, what Nathan is saying to David is not just, you're a terrible person, which he was. Admittedly, I mean, he, like, he lusted after somebody else's wife. He had that guy killed, and then he married uh, the widow. Saying, you're definitely a terrible person. But this is what he's saying. Don't you realize that God has given you so much. And if that had not been enough, he would have given you much more. Have you even asked God? Have you sought the Lord? So many times when we're given into temptation, ask yourself, have I actually sought the Lord for the thing that's bugging me? Before we're just compromising with other relationships, are we telling the Lord what it is that we need? And then reminding ourselves, man, but I already have so much. God has given me so much. I'm grateful and therefore, Lord, you know what? I don't even need these things. If we would have that mentality, the mentality of Joseph. When Joseph was imprisoned in Potiphar's house, and then Potiphar's wife was being the seductress, she wanted to sleep with him, and then David fleed, right? That's fleeing from youthful lusts. And what did he say? He said, how can I do this great sin against God? Nobody else was watching, right? Nobody would have even known, but he knew that this sin was against God himself. And that's how he's able to avoid it. Now, Joseph, I mean, come on. If there was anybody who could rationalize his sin, it'd be the guy who probably should be miserable in prison. He's like, I got betrayed by my brothers. I got sold into slavery. I got put in prison. And now this person who's really beautiful wants to sleep with me. I might as well, right? There's nothing else going for me. But he knew God's promises. And that's why he was able to say to his brothers, I'm not mad at you. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. He saw the hand of God throughout everything. And he said, how can I do this great sin against God? If only we could see into the future and see how many things God has planned for us. I bet you in that moment of compromise, we, would, we wouldn't do it. If we only knew 
the end result of our sin. So lust wants the best for yourself. Love wants the best for the other person. Now I have to ask you a question because I have bad memory these days. I'm getting older, older guys. Um, did I talk about the Lloyd Pulley and Karen illustration last week? Karen, I don't think I did. Okay, good. All right. This is a fantastic illustration that Lloyd shared a billion times. Never heard it. Great. If you have heard it, it's still worth saying. Something that, um, so Lloyd used to do, Pastor Lloyd used to do um, evangelism nights back when he was still interning at a church in California. And he would take groups out evangelizing and all that. And Karen, his wife, who was, you know, just a friend in the evangelism group, would go out evangelizing too. And so Lloyd at that time was talking to this blonde girl and he, it looked like he was interested in her and Karen was observing it from afar. And so she prayed, Lord, you know what? Like, I definitely like him. I think he's awesome, whatever. But if she would make a better wife for him, then I would want that more than for me to be with him. That's the kind of prayer that you gotta pray. Isn't that fascinating? Like, how many people pray that? Like, Lord, if that person would be a better husband, a better wife, I pray that person's with them. It's a hard prayer to pray because it's selfless. But that's exactly what love is. And she won. (laughs) So, this is what the Bible tells us to do. Be selfless. If the other person that you're with is always pushing physical boundaries, are you sure that they value you? Or they only value themselves? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2, we read it before. Treat older women as you would your mother, and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. Not taking advantage of them, but seeking to give. Okay, here's number three, last one. So three things God's word says to focus on in order to avoid compromising relationships. The first thing we saw was God's timing. There's value in waiting. Second thing, giving friendships. That love is selfless. And number three, God's will. God's will. Now turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God's will. So if you want to know the God's, if you want to know the will of God for your life, I have exciting news because I'm about to tell you. If people are seeking, God, what is your will? I'm about to tell you. So you should turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4. says this, for this is the will of God. Dun, dun, dun. What is it? Your sanctification. Oh, really? <laughs> Darn it. I I was going to say like, Bob. This is the will of God, the man named Bob for your life. But no, it does not say that. It says your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the venger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So, knowing God's will that God desires for you to be sanctified, which is a fancy word for being set apart. The word holy is another fancy word for being other. It's being completely different than anything else. This is what God wants his people to be. Someone completely different. A type of people that is set apart for him and his purposes. We are saving ourselves. We are purifying ourselves because Jesus loves us and we want to be well-pleasing to him. So, knowing that, what does God want to do with our lives? He has a calling on each and every one of you. He desires for you to be able to share his love with others. Bring them out of captivity. Bring them out of despair into his marvelous light. How can we do that if Satan always has victory over us by condemning us day in and day out? Always charging us with saying, oh, but you did this one thing. Who are you to go and tell that person about Jesus? You're a loser. I know who you really are. Ever always under the power of condemnation, how in the world are we going to be able to represent Jesus? Now there's power in the name of Jesus, for sure. What I want us to understand, though, is that God desires us to not have to go down that road of that struggle, that difficulty, the guilt that we we impart upon ourselves 
all because of sexual immorality and sexual sin. So we need strategies because there's a better purpose for our lives. If only we knew the plan of God for our lives. So many of us would sanctify ourselves, set, our, set ourselves apart. If I knew God was calling me to be a pastor in high school, I definitely would have done things differently. I would have read the Bible more, studied, memorized verses, done things differently. But we realize when you don't realize God has a high call in your life, you'll settle. You'll compromise. Even dog food looks good to, to the person who's starving. But when you know that God has something far better, you're able to resist it. Knowing that his plans are good. You know, when I was in high school, like the concept of dating someone who's not a believer, it didn't seem that crazy. It's like, I guess maybe. I don't know, maybe. Who am I to judge? I mean, I'm not that great of a person, you know? Like, that's how I thought. But now, like, if I started dating somebody who wasn't a believer, what would you think? You would probably lose all respect for me. Like, wow. After all those messages, all those times, and here he goes doing it, you know? Like, you would probably think, but why are you holding me to a different standard? What about you? Right? Like, why would you feel completely weird if it was me, but not for yourself? And that's because we don't see ourselves as ministers of the gospel. Ministry is just the word servant. Did you know that? Ministry and service are the same word. So all of us are called to be ministers, servants of the gospel. We're all to be sharing Jesus. Oftentimes, here's what happens. People think that their job is to bring people to youth group, and then the professional takes over. But if you know me, you know I am not a professional by any means. I didn't go to seminary. I don't really know that much about the Bible. I just, I don't know, I grew up in the church, and I just read the Bible enough times. You can do the same thing. It really does not take much. Now, I think that people should learn more. I think people should dive in deep and whatever. But here's the point, that God has called each and every one of you to be able to be ministers of the gospel to others, to share Jesus with others. There's no reason why you can't take the same words that's imparted to you and share with somebody else and have the same effect because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of your heart. So that's what we're supposed to be doing, ministers of the gospel. And if you know that you're a minister, here's what the Bible also says. You're also a priest. You're a royal priesthood, it says in the book of 1 Peter. What's the job of a priest? To be able to intercede on behalf of the people. Take the sacrifices and go before the God. I'm like, hey, here's what they've done. And I want to reconcile people back to God. That's the job of the priest, right? The Bible says all of you are, are now a royal priesthood. We're to be representing the people to God, to be interceding, to be praying for our nation, all of those things. And that's why we are to be set apart as the priests were set apart. Nothing wrong in you saying, you know what? I'm going to make a commitment this year. This year, I'm going to take an entire week off of social media. This year, I'm going to abstain from this, abstain from that. You know, as a pastor on staff, like, so like if you, if you have like parents that drink or you have friends that are 21 and over and they drink alcohol, like whatever, you know, that's between them and the Lord, not a big deal. But for myself, like as a pastor here at the church, we don't drink alcohol. It's just our thing, okay? It doesn't make us better. It doesn't make us worse, whatever. But for me, it's kind of like if they ask me as a pastoral staff, don't drink alcohol while you're here. We're, we're holding you to a higher standard. I'm kind of like, yeah, sure, sign me up. That's it? Like, should it not cost us something to follow Jesus? You know, not to inherit salvation for sure, but should we not be willing to lay down something and say, you know what, Lord, I want to set myself apart for you. I want to be holy. I want to be different. I want to be like everybody else. I want to be set apart for you because I know that you have a calling on my life. And therefore, I'm going to wait till marriage to have sex. I'm going to wait till I get out of high school to start dating people. I'm going to wait. They're like, what? What? Like, you're going to survive. It's going to be fine. I'm not holding you to a legalistic standard. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying, in your own conviction, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you, what is he calling you to lay down? What is he calling you to lay aside? What's getting in the way? And to be honest, like, the reason why I stopped playing basketball when I was, like, freshman in high school is because I started getting so concerned about girls. And if somebody told me that I'd be single for the next, like, 15 years of my life, I would have totally played basketball. I wouldn't be going to the mall every single Friday night or whatever it was, like every single day trying to pick up girls. I wouldn't do that. If somebody told me, hey, by the way, you're going to be single for the next 15 years. Like, great. Now I don't have to worry about it. I'm going to play basketball. I probably would have been pretty good. So what is it that you have to lay down for the sake of the gospel? Okay. We're going to get a little bit more practical now. 
Here's some strategies to com- combat lust. In order to lay down some of those weights, sin, etc. first thing you got to do is replace your passion with a higher passion. Replace your passion with a higher pas- passion. If you find it hard to combat lust, what you need to do is remember that your passion for Jesus has to completely exceed that. Now, all of you probably, like those of you especially that do sports, those of you who do sports know that like, if it's game time, you're like, all you can think about is the game. You're, you're like visualizing yourself, shooting the ball, running around the field. You have game plans. You know what you're going to do. You're fixated on it, right? And there's a way that you can actually see God's plan for your life and his beauty, his, and you can be captivated by his wonder. You just got to dig yourself in the word of God, in the community of believers, and in, in, in a time of prayer. Now, if you do that, and you're praying, Lord, I pray that you would give me a higher passion for you. He certainly does that. And he'll be able to be more beautiful than any other thing in this world. Here's another strategy. Don't redefine what victory is. Don't redefine what victory is. Here's what I mean by that. So when people are combat, combating lust, whether it's looking at stuff on the internet or whatever it is, they're like having a really hard time, they start to think that victory in Jesus is not messing up. And that's what victory is. As long as they don't look at stuff, ah, I have victory in Jesus. But realize that victory in Jesus is a past tense thing if you're a believer in Christ. If you've believed on Jesus, you put your faith in him, victory is done. It's over. That's why we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Because when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died for every sin, past, present, and future. Like all the sins that he accounted for, had to be in the future because we weren't even born yet. So you're realizing that the victory is already won. As one pastor told me, all we're doing is victory laps. Jesus hands us the baton. He won the victory. He won the race and says, now you're going to do the victory laps. That's what we're doing. So when we realize that the victory is already ours, now we want to be pleasing. God, thank you. Even though I continually mess up, you still forgive me. Here's your last strategy. Accountability. Accountability. God has given us an amazing community of people to be growing us in him. Just like we've said this before, if you want to get really good at basketball, soccer, a sport, music, whatever, surround yourself with people that are better than you so that you can learn faster. You know what the next step is. Same thing with the church. If you want to grow in the knowledge of God, surround yourself with people that are going to challenge you. And accountability is a great way to do that. Now, the verse for accountability, I think, is found in John chapter 3. It says this, verse 19. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Accountability is not, let me repeat, It is not you having a buddy who calls you every week and texts you and says, how are you doing? Did you mess up? Because that will never work. You might as well just have an app on your phone in in that case. Accountability is whenever you're convicted, you have somebody you can share all things with. You can text them because how am I supposed to know what kind of sin you're struggling with? I have no idea. And like, maybe you're not looking at stuff, but you're lusting in your mind or like, who knows? I don't know. So accountability is you coming to the light saying, I don't want to live in darkness. I want to take these things, these thoughts, and bring them out into the open. That's what accountability is. So it's you, and I'm not saying it doesn't include somebody texting you, calling you up, whatever. That's great to have. More so, everyone here, let me stress this, and you have small group leaders, everyone here should have someone that they can share everything to. Otherwise, here's what happens. Satan says, Yeah, but like if only people knew that one thing that you did, then no one would want to be your friend. Then no one could forgive you. God can't forgive you. You're always going to have that condemnation inside, right? Because you feel like there's that one thing that nobody else knows. And if they really knew that one thing, that would be over. But to be able to share those things with others and then not judge you, especially if they're older and wiser, your parents, youth leaders, to be able to share those things with others And see, there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus is the most beautiful and wonderful thing. And all of us 
need that, myself included. So in the remaining time, only about five to ten minutes, thank you for being patient. I'm going to go over practical tips for a godly relationship. So we went over three things that God were, God's word says to focus on in order to avoid compromise in relationships. Now we're going to go over some practical tips for those that are in a relationship currently or about to be in a relationship. So here's where you will want to tune in. Okay. First thing we have to acknowledge is this. Dating brings expectations. Those of you that have been in a relationship know this. As soon as you guys are official, all of a sudden people have all these expectations of you. Saying things like, so? Are you guys going to make it Facebook official? Like, nobody does that anymore, right? Are you going to post a picture of each other on Instagram? Are you guys going to get married? Are you going to have kids? Are you going to, like, people just have expectations of you and will always push you to the next level. So recognizing that means that you have a plan. You set standards or you will fail. You need to set boundaries, set standards from the onset. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in trouble because here's what's going to happen. If you don't at the very beginning of your relationship, say, here are the standards, here are the boundaries, here are the guidelines, what's going to happen is you're going to leave those standard setting times to either when you go over the boundaries and you stepped into sin or in the heat of the moment. And you're going to say, you know what? We have this boundary that we don't, like, hang out after 11 o'clock. But uh, whatever. doesn't really matter. Uh, you know what? 3 a.m. texting, not a bad idea. Like, you start doing stupid stuff, right? I always think about, like, if you remove texting and we went back, like, 200 years, that's the last time that texting was invented, right? 200 years? Whatever. So you, if we went back 200 years, imagine having a conversation with people, like, at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. It would never happen, right? But we do all the time. It's just easy, like, comment on people's things. Oh, you're up, too? You're, like, texting them or whatever. And you say stupid stuff because you're not thinking straight. You have, like, the mind of a drunk person, right? And you're just saying stupid stuff. Now imagine doing that in person. Like 3 a.m., you're just at their doorstep like, hey, I just figured you were up. So let's hang out. I'm like, oh, that's creepy. It's totally weird. No, not okay. So it, it seems that with our technology and the world that we live in, we should have standards, okay? And these are standards that you can set. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying within your conviction, you're bringing it before the Lord that you would set those boundaries, I think that men should be taking the lead on that. So leaders in the household, they should be leaders in the relationship as well. So this begs the question, how far is too far? The answer is Canada. Canada is way too far. I'm kidding. How far is too far? Well, going back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, right? It says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Anything. So? Don't look to others to set that standard. Don't be like, well, you know, this person's a very godly person, and they make out all the time. So therefore, it's okay for me to make out and not have any problems. Like, you can't do that. Stop that. Look to Jesus to make the standard. Ask him, and then you can be able to figure it out from there. So these standards will be subjective. It will depend on the person. For some people, dare I say it, even holding hands may be a problem. What? Holding hands, like, like if we didn't hold hands, we'd be the weirdest couple. You're already weird. It's fine. Everybody's weird. But here's, here's, I would rather be weird than step over God's guidelines and fall into sin and stumble, okay? So if you're holding hands, whatever. I'm just saying, go before the Lord. Go before other godly leaders, parents. Make standards. Write them down and hold each other accountable to those things. Ask a godly person in your life. Say, like, Hey, Mr. Mr. So, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, would you counsel us as a couple? Would you, like, hold us to these standards? Here's what we said. What do you think? I think that's a wise thing to do. So the point is not being physical beforehand means that you can actually do this instead. Revolutionary idea. Ready? You can base your relationship on communication. Huh. So th the way that we get closer to each other is not by being physical. It's through talking. That's crazy. Man, that just might work. Yeah. Like, shouldn't you have communication skills now in preparation for marriage? I think so. I think it's a good idea. So don't be blindsided by infatuation, by your feelings, 
whatever. Now, some of you are afraid that after I've said this, that you're afraid of being a social reject and just being like the weirdest couple ever. But you got to own it. Completely own it. Like your friends are like, what? You guys don't kiss? What? You guys don't do this? You don't do that? No. Why not? Well, because I want to value that other person so much that I want to take advantage of any part of them at all, ever. And I want to be able to one day save myself from marriage. And here's why. Here's why God's ways are better than, your, than our ways and our thoughts. And you just share it from there, okay? Go a little bit faster. Number one, okay? So here's the standards, guidelines. Number one. A godly relationship will be patient. Patient. How do we know that? The Bible says love is long-suffering, suffers long. Patient. So, once again, beware of going too deep, too fast. Sharing secrets that nobody else knows within three days, not okay. Don't do that. Be patient. Be willing to wait. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Number two, a godly relationship will not isolate you from the rest of the body of Christ. Godly relationship will not isolate you from the rest of the family of God. Now, here's what I see happen a lot. You tell me if I'm wrong. People start dating and they immediately stop hanging out with all of their friends. Not okay, okay? For, here, here's the biggest reason. Because I won't have any friends left. No, I'm kidding. Here's the biggest reason. God has given us his family, right, for all of us to, to be a part of. The Bible actually talks about in Ephesians that the entire body grows up together when each part does its share. We need all of us involved, serving, being there for one another for the entire body of Christ to grow. So if the body of Christ isn't growing, it might be our fault. As, us as individuals, because we've removed ourselves from those healthy relationships. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of one another. So that's what we're to be doing, is to be pursuing the relationship in community. Not like dating people, immediately you stop talking to all your friends. Go out on group dates. Start hanging out with other people. Be pouring into other people. Find, remember we talked about this last week, a helpmate who's going to help you in that mission. Number three. Godly relationship will not push you farther away from your calling. Godly relationship will not push you farther away from your calling. If a person you know that you're dating is called to do something that's diametrically opposed to what you know that God has spoken for you to do, the minute you realize that, you have to be able to figure a way to end the relationship. Otherwise, you're leading that person on. Here's the reason why people don't do that. The reason why people don't do that is because after years, whatever, months, communication, you've invested so much that it feels like, ah, even though I know that we're not right for each other, it's way too painful to just break up. So we're just going to let it go. Going to keep on going forward, even though I know that this isn't right. That is the absolute wrong thing to do. Number one, because it's not loving to you and to your friend. It's not loving to God either. You have to do what's right, even if it's not comfortable. That's something that's a good principle to learn. So you got to know your calling. And that's a hard thing to do when you're a teenager, to be honest. It's a hard thing to do when you're a young adult. You don't know what you're called to do. Many people don't. But to be able to ask the Lord, seek the Lord, and the minute that you know it, and you know that person is just not called to do what you're called to do, that you, you say, you know what? It doesn't seem like our lives are going in the same direction, so... You know, love you, care about you, but we're going to have to think about other options. If you feel really called to go to Africa to be a missionary, right, for instance, and then your spouse or the person that's going to be your future spouse is like, that would be their worst nightmare. They're totally not down for that, right? You're not married, so there's no obligation for them to do it, especially if they're not gifted in that area. So, number four, godly relationship will be accountable. So we just talked about that one. Godly relationship will be accountable. Find wise counselors, maybe a counseling couple, your parents, always wise. Number five, a godly relationship, this might be the most important one, will put Jesus first. Godly relationship will put Jesus first. You want to hear the radical words of Jesus? Here's what he says. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. God's saying, like, not saying that you're supposed to, like, hate your family. He's saying, like, God has to be the most important person in your life. Because any other person that you put in that number one seat will never be able to fulfill the God-like expectations you have of them. You're going to crush them because they're not perfect. God has to be your first love. So, in the relationship, doesn't mean that you always have to talk about Jesus all the time, 24-7. But in all things, you're giving glory to God. That you can thank God for each thing that you're partaking in in a relationship as a couple. Maybe you are doing your devos together. Maybe you are talking about scripture. Maybe you are going to church serving together. Maybe. Most importantly, it's not just saying like, did I fulfill my quota of Jesus for the day? You're thinking, how in everything that we do as a couple, can I be glorifying to the Lord? So, in conclusion, we're looking unto Jesus. That's it. The solution to fixing our nearsightedness is to look to Jesus. That's it. I'll read one last passage and that's it. Philippians chapter 3 verse 17. It says this. This is NLT too. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine, Paul says, and learn from those who follow our example. For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they're really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Paul says, with tears, I know there are some people some people that profess to be Christians, that their God is their appetite. The, the New King James, I, th- I think, says their God is their belly. They're being led by their emotions, going by gut feelings everywhere, doing everything based on how they feel. But we are citizens of heaven. You know, like one day when Jesus returns, all of us are instantly going to be single. It's not going to be marriage anymore, okay, because we're going to be married to Jesus. If it freaks you out, here's where we all take our hearts and bring them into subjection of Jesus and say, what is it that bothers me about that? What scares me about the rapture? What scares me about the second coming of Jesus when it comes to the relationship? Am I putting Jesus first or am I putting the relationship first? Because I don't want to do what's displeasing to the Lord because any of that will always lead to destruction and shame. So with all of that, let's pray.